0: Welcome to Redevelopment Trailblazers, where we talk to the innovators who tackle complex issues to help rebuild America's distressed communities. These pioneers have worked to strengthen the redevelopment economy throughout their careers, using creative, sustainable, environmental, and economic practices to transform the country's most challenging brownfield sites, neighborhoods, and regions. Hi, this is Leslie Parrish. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Marianne Manley. Marianne is an environmental lawyer, policy analyst, and communications expert who is the founder and president of 15e Communications. Before running her own shop, Marianne managed Bloomberg Industry Group's coverage and analysis of global environment, health, safety, and sustainability issues. Welcome to the podcast, Marianne. Oh, thanks, Leslie. It's so nice to be here. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Now, I'd love to start off by asking a bit about how you came into the brownfields and sustainability fields. You know, what piqued your interest here, and how did that lead to pairing that work with communication strategies?
1: Well, um, like many of us probably in the brownfield sphere, it, it was a bit of a winding road. So I initially um, went to law school, was interested in environmental law, and that interest actually propped up during my last year of college. I'd spent some time abroad in Germany where they were you know, very um, progressive on green at that time was the term used, green and sustainable policies. And I got very interested in that angle. So when I went to law school, I decided to focus on environmental law and I had a really great experience. I went to Widener University in Delaware. They had a real strong environmental program and I had the opportunity to work Um, in an environmental law clinic to get some hands-on experience. And that just sort of, you know, solidified um, my interest in that area. Then when I graduated, um, the job market was relatively tight. And I wound up taking a job as a contractor for department of justice and worked with attorneys in both the environmental defense and environmental enforcement divisions. Uh, This was mostly like doing like litigation support and trial support. Um, I learned a ton I was there for about five years, and then around that time, somebody had reached out to me who was working at a company then called BNA, Bureau of National Affairs, and said, hey, you know, they're looking for somebody to help with policy research, analysis, and writing on environmental due diligence. And I was kind of ready for a shift, and those were the areas that I was always the most interested in. So I decided to apply for the job, and I got it. So I was hired to be the legal editor for the Environmental Due Diligence Guide. Um, And I'm going to date myself here, but this was uh, around (laughs) 1998. Um, So brownfields and voluntary cleanup programs were in their relatively early stages. um, And that's sort of like when my career, you know, launched into that area. So, you know, it was perfect timing. And, you know, in 2002, we had the Brownfields Amendments. And that really became a top area of focus for that part of my career. The Brownfields, EPA's National Brownfields Training Conferences were taking place. And then there were some really big industry conferences too on the private side, Um, one in particular called RTM Communications, headed up by Jeff Talego, did all of these private sector with public regulators invited to, of course, but just sort of like the innovative approaches to Brownfields redevelopment. So I was very involved in in all of those efforts. And then also, this is around the time that I actually also met Michael Taylor, who was working on uh, ASTM standard for sustainable brownfields redevelopment. And uh, we worked together to get his article published with the Environmental Due Diligence Guide. So that's sort of like the early view on on how I got involved in brownfields. And then looking ahead a little bit more, uh, you know, BNA was actually purchased in 2011 by Bloomberg. We did a lot of rebranding, restructuring. And during that iteration, I took on some you know, more responsibility in different areas beyond due diligence and, and brownfields, more environmental compliance and sustainability. So that's sort of how that part of my career morphed. During that time, though, I always was still very focused on brownfields and environmental due diligence. So I did continue to do a lot of things in that space, including continuing to attend and speak at the conferences. They were annual, then biannual, the National Brownfields Conferences. And then about two and a half years ago, there was another sort of restructuring at Bloomberg and they were sunsetting some of the environmental products and coverage areas that I had worked on. And having been there for almost 22 years, uh, I actually took the opportunity to retire and definitely planned to start my own company and give it a whirl. Didn't know at the time that that would be perfect timing for the global pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so my plans to maybe take some time off and travel the world uh, with my family <laughs> and do some fun stuff sort of took a backseat. And I just kind of jumped right in to, to starting my work with 15E.
0: Yeah, and I'd love to hear more about what you do there at 15E Communications. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, how you work with your clients to assess their needs and what types of communication strategies you're often undertaking for them?
1: Yeah, well, um, it's really quite a wide variety of things that I do. What I offer my clients is the benefit of understanding the environment sustainability space. So all of my clients are really within that sector. And a combination of a legal background, years of policy analysis, the ability to write. Um, and then, you know, also during the latter stages of my career at Bloomberg, I worked with our product development teams and our marketing team. So I gained some of those skills. So pairing them all together, um, you know, I really do whatever my clients need in, in that general general sphere so that could you know include policy analysis itself and kind of advising on you know where the market is and what things are happening on the regulatory and policy side creating content so writing articles editing things that they've written and need to get out there you know publicizing and socializing both content and also just things going on at people's companies so a little sprinkling in there some brand leadership and business development so it's really really a wide range of things I also work with different kinds of companies and individuals. So I've had, um, you know, lawyers and some PR people ask me to help with either articles or speeches. I've helped startups, you know, from the very beginning help with language on creating new websites Mm -hmm. and establishing a social media presence. Uh, And then some of the larger companies that have, you know, their own marketing teams often need some help uh, in the subject matter expertise area, like they're, you know, the machines that get it all out there, but sometimes they need somebody to help focus in a bit more on the actual thought leader environmental aspects to make their content marketing more powerful. So that's sort of a sprinkling of things that I've been working on the last couple of years.
0: Well, thanks. It's great to hear that background and kind of the journey you've taken to get to get where you are today. And You know, you've obviously had a front row seat and served as a participant for well over two decades now in this field. So I'd love to turn to, you know, your perceptions of how the industry has evolved during that time and changed from a regulatory perspective and a policy perspective since you've done so much policy analysis, but also just a practical one as well. So if we start with regulatory changes, could you talk us through the shifts you've seen over the years and how the industry and other stakeholders approach regulatory compliance?
1: Wow. So we, you know, that's a lot to cover <laughs> in a short period of time. So I'll try to give it justice over, you know, doing it pretty briefly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, obviously the um, the establishment of the environmental regulatory scheme in the early 70s was what we would call command and control compliance oriented. So... When we look at that, it's really very prescriptive and focused on, you know, regulators focusing on like what needs to be done with very specific requirements and very enforcement-based, you know, liability-based. For example, you know, the federal Superfund law is all about, you know, what you need to do. And, you know, if you don't, there's these, you know, significant liability considerations so that was sort of the the beginning of, you know, environmental law and statutory regulation. And then, you know, we've definitely seen some shifts. So I would think of the command and control very much like the stick. And mm-hmm. then I think we've seen some things emerge that are more carrot and stick, right? So that some incentives plus, of course, the enforcement gavel, as we used to say in law school, to make sure people, you know, Are are still complying. So, voluntary programs and market based incentives are two sorts of areas that regulations have come, whether it be financial incentives like tax incentives. And, you know, not surprisingly, the whole um, birth of the brownfields program really was quite an innovation in policy because, you know, it really took a new approach to voluntary cleanup. And although there were you know requirements that needed to be met in order to move through those programs they were initiated by voluntary parties right so trying to get these sites cleaned up both public and private parties involved in those and really just trying to prevent these properties from becoming real dangers in the community so you know the brownfields programs themselves both federal and state are really unbelievable example of how, you know, an innovation in policy and regulation had, had moved forward. And then, you know, around that same time, you know, not to get too into the weeds on this, but EPA sort of integrated some concepts called like next gen comp- performance and compliance. So that was really more, um, trying to make regulatory efforts more efficient and technology was emerging that made that possible. So in addition to trying to create regulations that were easier to implement, you know, you have the advantage of having new technology for emissions detection and electronic reporting, which made data more available, more transparent, and just a lot more automation in that sort of reporting that made enforcement just a little bit Easier and targeted, I guess, would be the best mm-hmm. way to describe that. And then now, you know, the the newest iteration really is something that I like to call beyond compliance. And these are things more that I, I think were connected a lot to the sustainability movement and corporate stewardship, um, being a good environmental steward. So the thought here is just that compliance, the way that it had been, was sort of like the floor, like. That's sort of the minimum you're supposed to do. And then with this beyond compliance was really to, in being a good environmental steward, you also would reduce compliance costs, um, have a lower risk of future liability, and then lots of reputational benefits, which has actually become more and more important. And these these were less regulatory driven and more, I would say, like society driven, so mm-hmm. social media, I think, played a huge role in this, that there was access to so much information about companies um, and consumers could sort of weigh in on what they thought was wrong and right. And sort of this reputational risk became a, a kind of a real thing. And then, you know, more formally, you know, shareholders. So, you know, shareholders in public companies also started to take notice and becoming more active. You know, the term. Shareholder activism is one that I hear a lot about how corporate boards and shareholders are really driving some of the changes or have been driving some of the changes at the top. So the regulatory mandates sort of in this realm are really just emerging. So this latter part of beyond compliance um, has really been very, very interesting, I think.
0: You know, as you're talking about the concept of kind of moving beyond compliance, that's A good segue to what I wanted to ask you next about, you know, moving into transitions you're seeing kind of more in the policy realm. There's a lot of buzzy phrases and topics out there today that we hear about often. You actually touched on them a little bit already, like a focus on ESG efforts, um, environmental justice, and sustainability. To some extent, at least, those have always really been considerations in Brownfield's work. So I'm wondering if you could speak a bit to that, if If they're even kind of more emphasized today than perhaps they were before, or if you see it just kind of as a continuous approach there? Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The elements of of all of those things, I think, even if they had different names, have always been integral to Brownfield's redevelopment policies and approaches. Certainly, community involvement and stakeholder engagement is really one of the cornerstones of the program. And, you know, in fact, obviously at the federal level, communities are the ones applying for grants. In terms of ESG, or as you said, environmental social governance, uh, it's an, I think it's kind of a new name for a lot of the factors or externalities that brownfielders have been addressing for a long time. So, you know, just in case anybody listening isn't as familiar with, with ESG. So those are really metrics that are being used to measure and assess corporate performance. On the environmental side, these are factors related to a company's performance as a steward of nature or their interaction with the physical environment. Things like climate, emissions, pollution, and waste, materials sourcing, supply chain. Um, social is more how you know a company or an organization manages relationships with employees, suppliers, customers, and communities. So you know something like environmental justice, which is a term that's been around for a long time, but um, has taken on sort of an accelerated focus for a lot of reasons, environmental justice would kind of hit both that E and the S of ESG. So, you know, if you're looking on the policy side, what I think we see now is a real intersection of ESG, climate, environmental justice, and brownfields, you know, these things, I just look at them as all being completely interconnected. And like I said, you know, the ESG, you know, if you start looking at the policy mechanisms, you know, the ESG focus sort of took a non-traditional path. You know, it did not begin with regulators. It was largely being advanced by the investment community, consumers, and, you know, more activity on social media where you just had so much access, have so much access to corporate and organizational behaviors So with shareholder activism also being influential, obviously, as I mentioned before. But then, you know, that part of it has been different. And then now you have, you know, the incoming Biden administration, which, you know, made very clear from the onset that some of its top priorities were climate change, environmental justice and infrastructure. So, you know, as I mentioned, EJ squarely fits within the ESG bucket. Um, This is all completely, I think, integral to the concepts behind Brownfield's redevelopment. And on top of that, now we've seen unprecedented levels of funding earmarked for infrastructure and including, you know, the cleanup and redevelopment of contaminated sites. So, you know, with EJ criteria factoring in that, as you know, that is how a lot of this money is being prioritized. So, brownfields totally aligns <laughs> with all of those initiatives brownfields redevelopment really is sustainable redevelopment it hits all of those things so while we would probably all agree that these concepts and these principles have always been integral to brownfields you know they're actually like all of these things are just center stage on local, state, federal, and and even the global level. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing more intentionality here, I think, than ever before. And, you know, I do think that this will mean that there will be continued increased pressure to get sites cleaned up. And I think we will really see a lot of activity going forward because of these policies.
0: I know you went to the Brownfields conference a couple months back now. Yeah, Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oklahoma City. Yes. Yes. And and finally, kind of everyone being able to gather in person again. And I'm wondering, you know, maybe if you saw any kind of shifts there from kind of a more practical perspective, maybe in terms of who was attending the conference, the areas of focus of the conference, when you looked out across the agenda and were attending sessions or even the issues raised in discussions, maybe within sessions or just sidebar discussions, was there any evidence of, of shifts or transitions there you found interesting? Well, yeah. And first of all, um, yeah, sorry to interrupt, you
1: know, but it was so exciting to actually be back in person <laughs> um, in Oklahoma City for the Brownfields Conference. You know, as many folks who attend that conference know, it had to be rescheduled and shifted a few times. And really, Patricia Overmeyer and the Brownfields group really did an amazing job pulling the the conference together. I think it was considered a wild success. I believe there were, you know, over about 2,000 or more attendees there. And Mm -hmm. from what I understand, about half of those attendees were first-time attendees. So, you know, that is really something that is telling, I think, that there's a lot of interest in this area, and it's great to have new faces there. Always a good mix of public and private sector, in my opinion. So that seemed to still be the case. And then in terms of of topics, no surprise, you know, there was a huge focus on environmental justice, uh, solar renewables, larger issues of equity, resilience. You know, these were integrated even into sessions that maybe didn't have those concepts in the titles of the sessions. But, you know, that was definitely like some of the stronger themes, terms that I saw that I don't know that I'd seen before at these conferences would be things like nature-based solutions, climate migration, and then a lot of focus on the practical of like, you know, how are we managing some of these physical things happening in the environment, you know, extreme weather and flooding and wildfires. So all of that. Um, also quite a focus, I thought this time on on housing and affordable housing. So that's that's some of it. Oh, and also on the, the cleanup side of and concerns on like the contamination side, PFAS was a big, a big um, mm-hmm. discussion topic, and of course, you know, the levels of funding that are available kept coming up as well. So um, I think we did see a broad range of topics. So the tracks. We're not that atypical, you know, the tracks, you know, EPA breaks the conference down because it's so big into different tracks you can follow. But I do think that all of those themes sort of intersected regardless of what track you were following in. And then in terms of like who's attending and some of the other shifts, you know, I think it's really awesome to see that there were so many new first time attendees there. And in terms of the age ranges, you know, it really was quite a range of people who are younger in their professions and of course our seasoned um, brownfielders who've been doing this now for decades. So with that, you know, I, I think what the conference has does such a great job at is bringing those groups together. and it's so important right now because we see a lot of the brownfield's pioneers are going to be you know easing towards retirement and they've been the ones who've built these programs uh, and they have so much knowledge and that's both in the public. And private sectors. So this conference is a perfect forum for the transference of this knowledge, both having the seasoned professionals and t- players in this space imparting their knowledge to the folks who are new. Uh, and a lot of this ha- happens through the regular sessions, but also you know, day one is like Brownfield University, where you really have a chance for the newer players in the space to sit down and hear so much background information and practical information about how the program started, how it works. And, you know, the younger generation coming in, you know, they're super smart and they also, they have fresh approaches. There's all this new technology that can be applied, not just for like the technical cleanup side of things, but for communicating and engaging stakeholders and communities. So to have those two groups together for that transference of knowledge is just, pretty incredible. And, um, you know, that was another thing that I really saw was just the different kinds of people coming together at the conference. And, and that was, of course, really wonderful to see.
0: Well, we've spent the last several minutes talking about shifts, you know, regulatory shifts, policy shifts, the practical shifts you're seeing within the industry and 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 the people taking part and, and the topics that they're interested in. I'm wondering what excites you most about the future of brownfields redevelopment work and sustainability work.
1: Oh, well, there's really so much <laughs> there's really so much to be optimistic <laughs> about. You know, brownfields redevelopment, unlike a lot of other things, has always been a bipartisan success story. And that is something that I think will continue to be the case. We see that with a lot of things going on right now including just unprecedented levels of investment and money available for brownfields redevelopment. You know, through the infrastructure act money, there's literally billions of dollars uh, earmarked for cleanup and other areas where there's been huge investment that tie directly to brownfields, where there's other pockets of money available specifically, you know, for infrastructure, renewables, and in EJ communities. So, you know, the funding is unprecedented. And then you couple that with just the amount of knowledge and expertise and how well the public and private entities have really done in this space, really getting so many properties cleaned up. And now the opportunity to impart that knowledge on the next generation who I think will only iteratively make this even more of a powerful space for redevelopment. So I think all of those things together, you know, I look at them as all of the stars are are now aligned, you know, you've got the money, you've got the know-how and you have the incentive to do all of this amazing work. So I really think that the future of brownfield redevelopment is just brighter than ever. So it's 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 all very exciting.
0: Well, I I like your note on the stars aligning and we'll we'll definitely end on that positive note. That's all the time we have for now. So, thanks so much for joining us today, Marianne. I really enjoyed our discussion.
1: Oh, it was really my pleasure. Thanks so much, Leslie, for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. And we'll put a link to your website at 15e communication in our show notes for any listeners that want to know more. And for our audience, thank you for listening and please join us again soon for another episode. You can find all of our episodes and lots of other information on our website, redevelopmentinstitute.org. Thank you for listening to Redevelopment Trailblazers, presented by the Redevelopment Institute. For more information on successful strategies for brownfields redevelopment, urban renewal, and community revitalization, visit our website at redevelopmentinstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. See you next time.